Well, good morning again. It's, it's good to be back and uh, to gather together worshiping our Lord. And, and uh, this morning we begin um, an adventure through the book of 2 Samuel. So as I begin, you can go find your place there in 2 Samuel. In his book, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, The Cost of Bringing the Gospel to the Nations, Pastor John Piper writes an extraordinary uh, story, uh, relays the extraordinary story, the conversion of Adornam Judson, the famous Baptist missionary. He says, when he was 16 years old, he entered Brown University as a sophomore and graduated at the top of his class three years later in 1807. What his godly parents didn't know was that Judson was being lured away from the faith by a fellow student named Jacob Eames, who was a deist. By the time Judson was finished, he had no Christian faith. He kept this concealed from his parents until his 20th birthday, when he broke their hearts with the announcement that he had no faith and that he intended to go to New York and to learn to write for the theater, which he did six days later, riding on a horse his father gave him as part of his inheritance. It didn't prove to be the life of his dreams. He attached himself to some strolling players, and he later said lived a reckless and vagabond life, finding lodgings where he could and bilking the landlord where he found opportunity. His disgust with what he found there was the beginning of several remarkable providences. He went to visit his uncle Ephraim in Sheffield, but found there instead a pious young man who stunned him by being firm in his Christian convictions without being austere and dictatorial. Strange that he would find this young man there instead of his uncle. The next night he stayed in a small village inn where he had never been before, and as he checked in, the innkeeper apologized that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man critically ill in the next room. And through the night he heard comings and goings and low voices and groans and gasps. It bothered him to think that the man next to him may not be prepared to die. He wondered about himself. He had terrible thoughts of his own dying. He felt foolish because good deists weren't supposed to have these struggles. When he was leaving in the morning, he asked if the man next door was better. The innkeeper said, he is dead. Judson was struck with the finality of it all. On his way out, he asked, do you know who he was? And he said, oh yes, a young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours, pondering the death of his unbelieving friend. If Eames were right, then this was a meaningless event. But Judson couldn't believe it. He wrote, That hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed, this could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. Judson, who would later become one of the greatest Baptist missionaries, was not immediately converted. Many months of spiritual struggle would come but one thing was pressed down deep into his soul. The presence of death had crossed the path of life and changed him forever. As we begin a new study through an Old Testament book, Second Samuel, we encounter David, another man whose life has changed dramatically with the news of a death of someone who is very close to him. And we'll look at that this morning. Why should we study the book of 2 Samuel? It's a good question. And here's some, a basic overview of what I seek to cover as we go through this study in the fall. First, I want you to learn that God is the king we need. God is the king we need. David isn't the hero in this book. In fact, David isn't really someone that you want to emulate in all form in, his, in, in your life in this book. David himself testifies at the end of the book in 2 Samuel 22, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. The Lord's steadfast love and the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant promises are, are the true strength of the kingdom. So first, God is the king we need. Second, I want you to see the seriousness of sin and repentance. 
we see the good, the bad, and the very ugly in this book. It was written to be a wake-up call for every generation of believers. Over and over again, David's heart is struck by the seriousness of his sin and his need for grace. Third, I want you to see the connections with this book for the rest of the Bible. The Old Testament and New Testament, how they connect. David is a, a shadow king leading to a shadow kingdom. And this is all a part of God's plan to draw people to King Jesus and his everlasting kingdom. And, and we, as we follow this story, we learn more of what it means to pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come. And fourth, we will see real-world pain and raw emotional issues that too often go ignored in the church. What do I mean by that? We will, we will read of war and death. We will read of personal revenge mercy for a man with disabilities, a man in authority mistreating a woman, damage control, the loss of a baby, abuse in the family, the grief of power struggles with a rebellious son, life expectations that go sideways or backwards or seemingly nowhere, grumbling about leadership, forgiveness that seems crazy to others, bearing consequences for sins that are committed by others, misguided ambition, broken-hearted repentance, and promises from God that aren't yet fulfilled. It kind of sounds like an honest depiction of our world today, doesn't it? This is exactly the book we need to look at right now. As you read through 2 Samuel, and I would encourage you to do that this week. It takes about 45 minutes in one sitting to read the book you will find that there's some pretty difficult stories in 2 Samuel. A couple I just want to highlight here just to kind of give you awareness. You know, we learn in chapter 15 of David's horrific abuse of leadership with Bathsheba and to his repentance and the consequences from his grievous sin. We will one week cover David and Bathsheba and the next week Pastor Chris will, will preach on Psalm 51 of the psalm of his repentance. And then the following week, we're going to have a special, uh, unique evening service to cover 2 Samuel 13. And I've entitled that Sexual Abuse in the Gospel. Um, it's a separate service because I'm not sure children are best to attend. Parents, I'll leave that up to you. That's why we did a separate service in the evening but I believe this will be helpful. Because as you read 2 Samuel 13, this raw story of the rape of Tamar, there's an application for us as a church to know how to minister to those that have suffered the same. Second Samuel is a... a a book we need, a tough book. And I think we'll learn some things that God has for us. But before we look at 2 Samuel, in chapter 1, I want you to look back. If you've been here for a while, I preached through 1 Samuel, the rise of the king, in 2017. So it's been a number of years. And I entitled this service, The Return of the King, and it had nothing to do with me just so you know. I had no idea of that connection until someone else brought it up to me. I am not the focus. Uh, all of the messages from 1 Samuel should be on our website if you wanted to go and listen and catch up to that. But let me quickly kind of bring us up to speed as we will read. We'll read chapter 31 of, of 1 Samuel, and then we'll really spend the majority of our time in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel doesn't begin with a king. The book doesn't open up with a king. But in chapter 8, we find that the people rise up against the prophet Samuel and demand a mighty king to rule over them, to fight their battles, to bring power to the nation. But the reasoning that they want a king is they want to be like the other nations. They wanted security like the other nations. But in reality, they were rejecting God as their rightful king. 
And so God obliges, and he gives them a mighty warrior king. And this is no ordinary man. You can look at it in in 1 Samuel 9. The text says Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other person. He was uh, the stature of a king. He's what you would think that king should look like. And so the people asked for a king, and God gave them one. Ironically, Saul's very name is asked for. Saul was the king they had chosen, the king that they had picked for themselves, essentially, and God would allow them to have their mighty king as long as both the king and the people lived in obedience to God. But as we learn, that doesn't happen. Jumping forward to chapter 15, the Lord commands Saul to destroy Amalek and their people for what they had done to Israel when they had come out of Egypt. If you want to learn more about that, read in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. But we learn that Saul doesn't obey the Lord. He doesn't follow through. Instead, he spares Agag, the king, and the best of the livestock. He plunders them. And in that moment, he loses the kingdom. God chooses to remove the crown from him, and he will choose another king for his people. See, in 1 Samuel, Saul's problem was not the Philistines. Saul's problem was not Goliath. Saul's problem was not even the city of Amalek. Saul's problem was Saul. God could have conquered all of his enemies, but ultimately Saul refused to trust God. And in the end, God strips away his kingdom from him and gives it to another man to lead. And in the next chapter, 16, David is selected, a ready yet handsome young man, and he will be king. And he's anointed by Samuel, but he's not king quite yet. He wouldn't assume the throne just just then. David would have to wait. And when Saul realizes what happens and his kingdom is now lost, he loses control literally in his mind and he goes after David out of jealousy. And from that chapter all the way through the end, we see a lot of running from David and Saul chasing. In those, in those opportunities, there was two, two chances that David had to take out Saul. And he refuses to do it. David knew that the Lord's anointed could not be touched and he would wait for God to move. And so that quickly brings us to the end of the book. David's been living in the land of the Philistines of all places. Israel's greatest enemy. And the war comes to Israel and David goes to Ziglag. And God had said that Saul and his sons would die in the battlefield because of chapter 28 and what Saul did by, by visiting the witch of Endor. Another fabulous chapter to read. But in that, he finds out from Samuel, Saul finds out that he and his son will die. Divine judgment will come. Now, 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Goboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And that's how 1 Samuel ends.
Saul is dead. The mighty has fallen. And so what will happen next? Well, here's the main idea for this morning. Here's the main idea for the rest of our time here in 2 Samuel 1. The earth's mightiest men will still fall, but we have a king whose reign will last forever. And there's a very simple outline, two points, a liar and a lament. Okay? So turn over in 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David reigned two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be at Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he, he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen, and I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. So a casual reader reading 1 Samuel 31 and then reading 2 Samuel 1, hears the story of this Amalekite and would say, hey, wait, I thought Saul died by self-inflicted wound. Do we have two accounts of this? And the short answer is, no, we don't. The narrator keeps reminding us that this is only his report and not necessarily the facts of the situation. We have the narrator's description of what happened in chapter 31, and we have the story from this man. And the solution is simple, says commentator Dale Ralph Davis. If you ever have a choice between a narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. I think what we learn from this is this Amalekite enters the scene as an opportunistic schemer who looks at the situation and the people involved and uses it to try to bring wealth and power to himself. He, he's convinced himself that if he concocts this story about finishing off the king, Saul, and gathering the crown and, and the armlets, that David would somehow thank him. He, he foolishly assumes that David would be happy to have the spoils of plunder, that David would, would be thrilled to finally be king, that David didn't have to kill Saul. This guy did it for him, and this guy would then gain earthly treasure and prestige. But we have already heard and we've learned through the first book of 1 Samuel, David had consistently refused to snatch the crown from Saul, David was going to wait on the Lord. And I wonder what we can learn from this. Whether it's at school or work, are there situations where we believe we are due a position or honor and it hasn't happened yet? And we sit back and we observe and then we look to, to organize things, to manipulate things, so that we come out on top. Do we sit back and try to force the situation towards us? Do we scheme to get what we want when we want it? You know, a few weeks ago when Pastor Chris was preaching through the armor of God in Ephesians 6, he read that verse, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I sat there and I listened to that and I thought, schemes, the devil is a schemer. You know, schemes can sometimes be translated plans, but, but usually the word schemes is never positive when we use it. 
It's usually a deviousness, right? When we scheme to get what we, we don't have, friends, we're more like the devil than, the God, than God. See, Satan is a schemer. He only makes schemes. But we don't read anywhere in this account of David scheming to get the throne. He waited. He trusted the Lord because he was promised that the Lord would make him king. And the Lord's promise was enough. Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites instead of destroying them against God's orders. And what do we find here in this story? The Amalekite has plundered Saul. Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites when Samuel came, but he did not. And now the Amalekite plans a scheme that, that claims to have wiped out Saul, but he did not. He's lying. He's a schemer, and he'll be found out. Look at verse 11. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David doesn't respond the way the messenger expected that he would. I'm sure at this point he's feeling very nervous. David tears his clothes, and so do the men with him. They mourn and they weep and they fast until evening for Saul and Jonathan for the people. And you might think, after running for your life for years, that David would have rejoiced that Saul was now dead. But David doesn't do that. David knew that God was never pleased with a heart that is vengeful, even against your enemies. Solomon writes for us in Proverbs 17.5, He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. The point in David's lament over Saul's defeat is that sin is never worth it. Sin always brings death. It always brings destruction. Sin never goes the way we think it will. John Calvin warns that he does not want us to be so presumptuous in our rejoicing that we fail to consider our own sins and thus displease him. We ought also to tremble before his majesty, knowing that we too are deserving of punishment and grieve as those whom he punishes. Remember back at the beginning of the service, the passage that Pastor Chris read from Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. It's easy to acknowledge. It's hard to do. But David gives us an example here. David's reaction also shows us that he might have been nurturing some mercy towards Saul at this point in life. Sometimes our reaction to sudden news will show what we've been cherishing in our own hearts. And we don't see any malice here from David. Coming back to Romans 12 again, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If we are to live peaceably with others, we need to be willing to forgive. And it begins in our minds with sanctifying thoughts towards our enemies and those that are against us. One thing that I don't want you to miss in this story is the death of Saul is divine judgment. As I said earlier, God said that he would strike down Saul and Jonathan. They would die in this battle for their disobedience. And this is serious for us to consider, friends. Think back to my opening about Judson, whose spirit was troubled during the night because the sounds of death came from the next room. We all should be heavy in heart for every instance of divine judgment. Friend, do you realize this morning that divine judgment is coming for every living soul on this planet? You and I have lived selfishly like Saul. We have lived in disobedience to his word. 
and the right and just penalty for our rejection is judgment. We deserve it. You and I, we, we, we deserve it. We know deep down inside, in the crevices of our hearts that no one else sees, that we have failed God and His standard. And we know that we deserve divine judgment. And yet God stepped in and satisfied his wrath by sending his only son to die in our place. You see, the great surprise in the universe is not that people go to hell. It's that anyone goes to heaven. And it's all because of Jesus, the anointed one rightful king over the universe who came and sacrificed himself for sinners like me and sinners like you so that we can finally be made right with God. Friends, this is the best, most glorious news in the world. Have you repented of your sins, of trusting in yourself, and have you turned to Jesus Christ entrusted in him alone? That is the question this morning. Could I implore you to do that today? If you have more questions about this, please come find me after the service. Find someone in your row. Find Pastor Chris or other pastors and elders here. Someone in your row that you think they look like a Christian and just ask them, how can I become a Christian? And if they don't know how, they'll, they'll send you to someone else. But friend, don't leave today. Don't leave here this morning without answering this question, whether you know and you're trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, following the, the verses in order here, we come to verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David's response to the man in verse 16 is obviously before he is executed, otherwise he's talking to an executed man. So don't get so concerned of the timing of this. The, the author is relaying a story. And David is essentially saying that, that his own death was on his head. He, he admitted to killing Saul. And whether that's true or not, he knew that the anointed king could not be touched. And he, he admitted to taking his life as if it was a virtue. And this man receives justice. But it's justice mixed with irony. He is punished for what he said he did, even though, at least in our view, he didn't really do it. And he received what he should have received, even though it was not based on fact. And what we learn from this is the judgment of God found him no matter what. The, this Amalekite assumes that David is driven by the same passion for power as he is, and so he makes his story close enough to be believable. And yet he's found out. The charge against this man was that of des desecration as God's anointed king. The person of Saul was sacred in God's eyes because God chose him. Therefore, anyone who struck him was liable to the punishment of death. That's why we read in chapter 31 that we read earlier when Saul turns to his armor bearer and asks him to finish him off. And what does he say? He, he didn't because he feared greatly. He understood what it meant that he was the anointed. And the Lord's anointed is, is, is Bible language for the one chosen and appointed by God to represent him as king. And yet this man concocts the story thinking that he can get away with it. That he can fool David and ultimately fool God. Isn't it strange when we find ourselves perhaps in the same type of situation? 
feeding this absurd notion that if, if we've duped man's eye, that we have eluded heaven's gaze as well. You ever play peekaboo with a little, little kid? And they put their hands up, and they assume that you're gone when their hands are up? Because their hands are up, you're just, you can't see them. We kind of act that way towards God. Somehow if we, if we, we convince another human that what we've done is correct and it's not correct, that somehow God is just going to agree with that because we got past it. We got through. No one caught us. How easy it is to think that a moral compromise in which we always see as somehow slight may somehow be an advantage for us and that God would not see it. See, the Amalekite only distorted the truth a little, thinking he could fool God and fool David. And here we see the deceitfulness of sin. Sin only needs a little bit before it convinces us that we are in the right and then we're toast. David gives the order here to execute this Amalekite. I find it interesting that David gives the order that Saul refused to do that would have saved his kingship. David executes the Amalekite and he completes the work that Saul had failed to do. David is faithful to his God. So that is a liar. Second is lament. This is a shorter point if you're wondering. After looking at the calendar this week, it's been almost three weeks since the news broke of the announcement of the Queen of England that had died. The longest reigning monarch in England's storied history took her last breath at the age of 96. And soon after, media and papers were filled with stories and memories of the Queen and her long reign as Queen and swarms of people gathered outside of the royal residence soon after, and and then lines were formed as the coffin came through so that people could pay their last respects. They said at the Great uh, Britain's Parliament that the line was almost five miles long for the people of England to come pay their respects. And then the funeral. I didn't get a chance to watch the entire thing, but I saw the order of service, and what a magnificent display of Christian hope. Genuinely, the verses that were chosen, the songs that were chosen were magnificent to point billions of people to the hope of Jesus Christ. And then this, the service ends with the personal piper for the queen who would wake her by playing the bagpipes. I just have my phone that wakes me up every morning. She has a piper outside her window that would wake her And the service ends by him playing a lament on his bagpipes entitled, Sleep, Deary, Sleep. See, laments are appropriate. And as we we come to 2 Samuel here in this section, we come to a lament that's important for us to consider. Death is complicated. It terrifies us and confuses us. It seldom comes as expected. Death silences us. You know, it's hard to know what to say when death comes. And at the same time, death has a way of putting things into perspective, causing us to look at our own life and realizing the end is closer in the beginning with every day that we're given. Even as Christians who have been walking with the Lord, who love God and love His Word, 
And we recognize that God has given all the answers we need, but seldom do we get the answers that we would like when death comes. Death comes to the ears of David. And David here is struck with grief at the news of Saul and Jonathan's death. And David now writes this this lamentation, this lament. And I think it's significant and important for us as believers to pause and consider what David says here. You know, a lament can be defined as putting your grief into words. I'm going to read it completely here in a moment, and then we'll walk through it. But I want to mention a book. It was published a few years ago by Pastor Mark V. Grope called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And it walks through. This is an excellent book. We have three copies in the book still after the service. If you want to pick one up, you can. But it walks through some of the biblical laments in the Bible And it gives you tools and help as a Christian to form this and understand this because I think it gives peace in some ways to those that have suffered loss. So I would highly recommend that book. Follow with me in verse 17 here through the end of chapter 1. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil." From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's go back up to verse 17 again. David begins this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan. I want you to imagine a prime minister or royalty or even a president who you personally dislike is suddenly assassinated. You would naturally respond with shock and outrage and sadness. Why? Because we honor the post even if we don't want to honor the post holder. Despite years of persecution by Saul we don't read a bitter word from David. This is not native to the human heart, friends. I believe it's a beautiful flower planted by God and his grace in the heart of a man. And David's grief here was not private. He made it public because of the significance of the ones that had died. David grieved for the people of Israel who died, but this lament is focused just on the prince and the king. And David composes the lament and publishes it to the nation, encouraging them to know it, to understand it. And he says in verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is repeated three times total in this lament. And what David wants you to understand is how, how great of loss this is for the nation. The greatness that once was and is no longer. And this is the pain of grief. It is the terrible sense of loss. When we grieve those that have died and weep, we weep because of what was 
but now is not. Much of the pain and grief comes from our awareness of all that we have now lost and that we'll never get back. It's very human to grieve. He says in verse 20, Tell it not in Gath, publish it and not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And David here is, is, is encouraging them not to gloat in any way because of the good name of God. David didn't want his enemies to hear that the king was dead. David literally wasn't telling people of Israel to refrain from announcing it. It's hardly possible. But he was grieved because now the gods of Dagon, of the Philistines, would be praised from the downfall of Saul. And the God of Israel would be laid aside. And you can sense the, the shame in David's words here. The God of Israel would be mocked because of this terrible loss. And then in verse 22, from the bloods of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your apparel. There's something important here to notice about grief. The pain that we feel when we grieve doesn't quickly fade. It tends to, to sit. Grieving and mourning takes time. That's why the book of Job is so long. When we gather to remember someone in the funeral, we share those things were a blessing, those fond memories, those happy times, because we want to remember that. It's good to remember that. But it's a recognition that they're no longer here. David is rehearsing this for the people. The deaths of Saul and Jonathan were an absolute terrible loss for the nation. You know, as we, we can go back in and see all the faults of Saul, but still there was some good that he accomplished for his people. You see in verse 24, and David insisted the good should not be forgotten. The blessing that Saul had brought to the people, there were blessings there that God had used Saul in many ways. And, and by God's kindness, there was some good that had come to the nation. And, and David is teaching his people to see that and to thank God for that in the midst of our grief. And then he ends in verse 25 through the rest of the chapter. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war perished. The death of Jonathan was devastating to David. It was more than a loss of a close friend. If you go back and you read again the anointing of David and the recognition that David would be king by Jonathan is significant. Who is the prince right now? It wasn't David. It was Jonathan. Jonathan was the next in line. And what we read there was, was Jonathan recognizing God as anointing David. And Jonathan willingly and joyfully standing aside so that David would assume the throne. And their closeness formed in this. As they battled together, together out in war, they, they, this closeness as brothers continued to grow. I'm sure David had hoped that Jonathan would serve by his side when he became king. But now all reality sinks in. David, or Jonathan, is now dead. And David's grief is intense, and rightly so. 
Matthew Henry said, the more we love, the more we grieve. Sorrow in our lives will be the hardest when the love is the deepest. We see this here. When David writing this out, and, and I know that some gathered here have, have lost loved ones in the last few months. And I want to encourage you, if this might be helpful, to put your grief into words. Maybe you've already done that. Perhaps that would be a balm for your soul. Like David, writing out your grief in a lament that could help instruct your heart and bring comfort that you've been longing for and needing. You know, the Psalms give guidance for this. Many Psalms are laments. Being able to pour out your your anger even towards God for something that's been taken away from you. And yet circling back to recognize who God is, that's a lament. If you want encouragement and help, I'd love to help in that. I do need to mention one phrase just because I know I'll get questions over this. Verse 26, David says, Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This verse has brought a lot of hubbub in the last few years because the world wants to say there's an example of homosexual relationship between Don, David and Jonathan. You need to recognize that in a military culture and in a culture that marriage could be a matter of political expedience, the bond between two men who went to war together was deeply felt. And so the suggestion says more about our culture's sexualization of relationships than it is about that. And frankly, it's just lazy exegeting of the text. That is not what is said here. Their bond was that of brothers. And David is expressing the deepness of this brotherly love that he and Jonathan shared. Nothing more. So what can we learn? What can we learn from the end of Saul's life? You know, as you read the book, uh, 1 Samuel, you, you read that Saul kept up with the religious practices in his life. And sadly, he did this without, without really knowing God. It's possible to come to church every week to give and to serve, to even be a member and never know God. We can act really well. We see this in the life of Saul. Saul was a mighty warrior, a good commander. But ultimately, when the rubber met the road, he didn't trust God. He wouldn't trust God. And he couldn't find his satisfaction in God. You know, we see the lack of trust when he's given opportunities to obey and he decides to do what he wants to do out of fear of man or whatever it is. And we tend to, in this world, I think, always seem to be looking for mighty things to place our trust. We don't want to put our trust in things that can disappoint us. And so we search for strong and mighty things to, to hope in whether that's a strong economy or a strong stock market or a strong marriage bond or a strong school for our kids. We want things that will last and will satisfy us. And those things in and of themselves are not bad. But they all will eventually fail us. They are ultimately not mighty enough. And as we walk through 2 Samuel, you'll quickly realize that David isn't mighty enough. He isn't mighty enough as a king that they can place all of their hope on him. See, we, we learn that people eventually shift their allegiances from Saul to David, but it won't bring a lasting joy and peace that they need. And mighty men that we see in the Old Testament were never meant to be enough for humanity. 
That's why Isaiah tells us in the ninth chapter of his book that God will not leave us without any hope. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. The mighty one that Isaiah prophesies is a baby, Emmanuel. God with us. Born to a virgin 700 years later after this. And he is the one that we have longed for. He is the mighty one. We finally receive the mighty one in Jesus who will never disappoint us. The New Testament confirms that Jesus is, in fact, the mighty, all-powerful God who created the universe. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the mighty one that we need, where our hope and our trust needs to be. See, the, the earth's mightiest men will still fall. But we have a king whose reign will last forever, this mighty one, Jesus Christ. And I pray that it will be true of us this morning that we will find our hope and our trust in him alone. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne and we recognize that you are our mighty king. And we ask that you would help us to serve you well. We know that many have come with worries and concerns this last week that have consumed us and still others continue to grieve for what is lost and gone. Father, we recognize again this morning that you are the God of all comfort and grace. Help us to trust you more than ourselves. Help us to follow you in your word more than this world. And show us in your great mercy how to be under the rule and reign of our just and loving and merciful God as you've revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this for his sake. Amen.